Matthew chapter 28, starting verse 1. It says, After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going in to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, collapsed at his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we open up this time where we're listening to your word, Lord, prepare our hearts for this message. Lord, speak to us in the way that we need to hear this Easter. Lord, remind us that we have a hope in you, and that's the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as you've given me this platform, and I'm so appreciative of it, and I'm so honored to be able to preach your word, Lord, that I give you glory through preaching. Lord, I pray that people here, they don't hear just my opinion or my thoughts on scripture, but that they hear your word spoken to them, and that you speak through me as you always do and as you always know how. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So have you ever met a stranger before? Right? Okay, we've got a few people that are telling the truth. Everyone's met a stranger before because any friend, any spouse, any person in your life that's not necessarily family was at one point a stranger, right? Chloe and I, for example, we didn't know each other for a long time. Um, went to the same school, same, not the same elementary school, but the same middle school, went to the same high school, and uh, it was up until my senior year of high school and her sophomore year that we actually met each other. So we were in the same high school, in the same building, walking the same halls, probably going in the same classrooms. And for a year and a half in school years, we had no idea who each other were. We were strangers to one another. Now that eventually led us to start talking. I stammered a lot on our first encounter. And then she interpreted my stammering. And then, you know, I think I was just so adorable <laughs> that she was like, oh, he can't even get words out. That's my guy, right? So um, we ended up getting married, and, but not every stranger that you meet is your soulmate, right? Because uh, even my closest friends that I have to this day, we met in college, and it was because of our college classes. The college classes were so small, we would have four or five students, maybe up to 10 with the classes that I was taking, and so we were kind of all forced to just talk to each other because it was a small university. Uh, but... It all started with two strangers talking to one another and becoming friends. And that's usually how it starts off with. Now, if you uh, come here on, on regular Sundays, you probably, if we have someone new, 
I don't always do this because I'm not always the best at it, but usually I walk up to someone that I don't know or I don't recognize and I'll ask them, what's your name? And usually I introduce myself to and then they tell me what their name is. And that's how these conversations start. What's your name? Now, typically in our culture, it's kind of a common courtesy that if I walk up and I say, hey, I'm Logan Hensley, that they're going to respond with their name, right? Typically what you don't see is, and I'm not saying this hasn't happened to me, okay? So this has happened to me. But typically you don't walk up to someone and say, hey, I'm Logan Hensley, and then they look and say, oh, that's so cool, right? No, they, they tell you what their name is. I'm not saying that hasn't happened, because it has, but um, I was like, okay, what's your name, <laughs> right? But you simply introduce yourself, and then that eventually leads to conversation, right? It leads to um, your current situation, whether you're in line at McDonald's or, um, because we all know that that line's long, or, or like Walmart or something, which all of those are self-checkouts, but... Uh, you, you get the idea. There's a common situation and you start talking about it, which may eventually lead into interests or hobbies, where they work, family life, and then it continues to build and grow. Now, most people, without any type of idea whatsoever of what the person is, like I know that there's different, like if you go to a doctor, you're expecting that they have some type of knowledge in the medical field. Or I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone in that's standing in front of you at McDonald's or whatever restaurant, fast food restaurant, if you even go in, right? Most people, and I say most because I don't know if that I can say all people do this, but most people don't go up to a stranger without any knowledge about who they are and say, here is my deepest and darkest secret. Or here is something that I regret the most in my life. Or, hey, I need advice on how to handle my finances. I'm in a really financial struggle. Can you help me with my finances? Or can you help me with this broken family relationship? Can you help me with parenting my kids? Can you, can you help me with this? Well, you probably don't do that. I mean, if you do, you should probably stop. But um, if, you, if you don't, like most of us, it's because you really don't know anything about them. For all you know, they could be severely in debt, be terrible with money, Terrible with sustaining relationships and a terrible parent. It's not until you meet the stranger and you start building trust with that stranger that you get to know them and know what you can trust. So, for instance, you might walk up to a stranger, you get to know each other, and then you find out that they're really good with money, right? They're a multimillionaire, right? They're really, really good with money, handling their money. They're not just buying it on all these toys and gadgets and stuff, but like they're, they're just, they're really good with money. But you also find out that they've been divorced four times, that they don't know any of their kids, and they got divorced because they cheated on their spouse. You're probably not going to ask them for marriage tips. And you're probably not going to go up to them and ask them how to help parent your kids. But you might go up to them and ask for financial advice. Right? And so you wouldn't know any of that unless you went up and you talked and you started to build a relationship with them because then you would know what to trust. But you can never know how to trust them unless you get to know them. And I think sometimes that's the problem that people have with Jesus. They know that he can do miracles because they've been told that he can do miracles. They know that, they li that uh, Jesus lived, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins because they hear it every single Easter. They know about Jesus, but they really don't know who he is. They don't know him. 
When I think about Easter, to me, it's super special. And it gets special every single year because I've lived my life standing beside him. I've walked with him. I've followed him. I've, I've learned more about who he is each and every year. And so Easter is so special to me because I know who Jesus is. But I think sometimes, and some of us, even in this room, we know a lot about Jesus, but we don't really know who Jesus is. So Easter is just this tradition that we have where you get together with family, you go to church, you hunt some eggs, you have a meal, you move on. But when you know him, Easter means so much more because it's a celebration. It's a reminder that Jesus is still alive today and that we have a hope in the resurrection, that we are cleansed from our sins, and that we will be made holy and righteous before God on judgment day. And this is made available to all who take up their cross and follow him. But if you don't know Jesus, you'll miss out on what Easter really means. So this morning, I want to kind of, I did this last year too, but I want to kind of do a little unconventional of an Easter sermon. We're still going to talk about the death and resurrection, but it's probably not the, the typical traditional Easter sermon, right? We might get back to that model at some point, but for at least the past two years, this has not been it. Uh, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about my Jesus by using the things that he actually said about himself in Scripture. So throughout the New Testament, there's these things called the I am statements. And these I am statements is what Jesus said about himself. And he would start off the sentence with I am. That's why they're called I am statements. And then he would finish it. So in John, in the Gospel of John, there's seven of them, seven main ones that we talk about. And here's the order that you see them in John. It says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door or the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. All right, so each of those seven. But with each I am statement, he also demonstrates who he was with the miracles that he performed. So in John chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus declares, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What he's saying is that I am the supplier of all things. I am the sustainer of all things in order to live. So in order to have life, you need him. Without him, you will die. And just a little bit before he says this, he declares that he's the bread of life. He demonstrates that he's the bread of life to the people. And this comes from John chapter 6, starting in verse 1 to 12. You'll find the feeding of the 5,000. You've been in church long enough. You've probably heard this preach because these passages are really easy to preach. But uh, you've got the feeding of the 5,000. There's 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So just the men, but they're bringing their women and children with them. And uh, they come up and Jesus has compassion on them. He wants to feed all of them. And he looks to his disciples and he says, we need to feed all these people. They're so hungry, right? We need to feed them. And he looks to Philip and Philip being the analytical, like practical one, he says, uh, Jesus, we don't have enough for that. In fact, it's going to probably take more than a half year's wages just to simply give them a bite, not even to give them a meal, just a bite. And then some of the other disciples, they find this little boy, and this little boy is willing to give up his lunch. He's like, here's, here's my lunch. All I have are five loaves and two fish. And so he gives this to Jesus. Jesus blesses it. He gives thanks over it, and he tells his disciples to go and distribute it. And they go and distribute it. Everyone gets completely stuffed just like a good General Baptist potluck. And when they come back, they gather up all the leftovers so that nothing's wasted and they have 12 basketfuls. 
of food left. Well, then Jesus actually, this isn't found in the book of John, but it's found in Matthew and Luke. He goes across the sea. And there's another encounter where a large group of people, they come up to him and he teaches them. And for three days, they don't eat because they're, they're listening to all of these amazing teachings by Jesus. And Jesus looks to his disciples again and he says, all of these people, all 4,000 of these people, they're so hungry. They haven't ate in a couple days. What do we have? And they say, well, all we have are seven loaves and a couple small fish. Jesus does the same exact thing. He gives thanks over it and he tells his disciples to distribute it and they distribute it. And when they gather it all back, they have seven basketfuls full of food left over. Now, I'm not gonna go very deep into this because I don't have time for it. But there's a reason that there's 12 baskets and then there's seven baskets. The 12 baskets were actually during the 5,000 were found, he was in Israel And so since it's in Israel, he was saying, I am the bread of life to all of Israel, all 12 tribes of Israel. But then when he crossed the sea, he left Israel and he went into the Gentile country and he preached to them and he said, but I'm also the bread of life to the Gentiles too. And the seven basketfuls represented the seven kingdoms, the seven nations of the Gentiles. So he's saying, I'm the bread of life, not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles too. I'm the bread of life for the world. But he also said in John chapter eight, verse 12, he spoke again to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will live a light of life. And I think he demonstrates this by healing the blind man just a chapter later. In John chapter nine, verses one through seven, you can find this story. Jesus is walking along and he finds this blind man, this guy who was born blind. He's been walking in darkness his entire life because he couldn't see. And as he's walking along, it's kind of one of the more disgusting uh, miracles that he does, but he, he spits into the ground, into the dirt, mixes it up, makes some mud, and then rubs it all over his eyes. And he tells him to go wash in this pool. When the man goes and washes in the pool, he can finally see. So where the man was born blind, he had lived his life in darkness and Jesus came and opened his eyes so that he was no longer living in the dark. He was living in the light for the rest of his life. Now, something else that Jesus says about himself is he says, I am the gate for the sheep. That comes from John chapter 10, verse seven. He says, very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but, I, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come so that they may have life and have it to the full. The gate to the sheep pen is the most important part because that allows the sheep to go in and out. And it's the only way into the sheep pen meaning that Jesus is the only way to life abundantly, to life to the fullest, and he's the only way to heaven. But I actually believe that he demonstrates this through healing the paralyzed man in Bethesda. So in John chapter five, a couple chapters before he says this, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And if you know the story, you know that he comes up to this man, he's been paralyzed for 38 years and hasn't been able to walk and he's sitting next to this pool called Bethesda. And at this pool, they believed that once a year, every year, the angel would come and stir up the waters and the first one to get into the pool was the one that would be healed of whatever disease or illness that they had. 
And this man has been laying by this pool in hope, and he's lost all hope. Because for 38 years, he's always come in second place, which means that every single time that he tried, he, got, he lost. He, he didn't get healed. And as he's sitting there, Jesus walks up to him, and he says, do you want to be healed? He says, I've been here for 38 years, right? I've lost all hope. And Jesus tells him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Now, you might be wondering, where does that connect? Well, in verse 2 of John chapter 5, it says, Now they're in this Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool called Bethesda. You see, where the, where the paralyzed man had not been able to move for the majority of his life, when Jesus came through the sheep to go to the pool of Bethesda, he looked down and he said, get up and walk. And for the first time in that man's life, he got up and walked through the sheep gate. But then Jesus also says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 11, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, I believe that Jesus demonstrates that he's the resurrection and the life, not only through his own resurrection, but through raising Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, a little bit later after he says this, verses 38 through 44, you'll find the story of Jesus walking up to the tomb of Lazarus and having to roll away the stone just as a clear picture of what he was going to have to experience and go through, how he would be the one that would be in the tomb one day. But they roll the stone away and he tells Lazarus to get up and walk and, and to come out. And Lazarus believed in Jesus because Jesus is the resurrection. And even though Lazarus was dead, he's going to live. And he did. And whoever believes in Christ will never die. So Jesus is the life, the life that never ends. Now, this also gives us hope because at the end of, end of the days, at the end of time, all who follow Christ, all who take up their cross and follow him daily will have a physical resurrection and will be given a new body. This is what this is, this is demonstrating. Resurrection is not just for Jesus. Jesus is offering it to all of us. Right now, I don't know about you, right? I'm, I'm still pretty young, but for some of the older ones, you're wanting a new body, right? You're waiting for that new body that can move better, doesn't hurt anymore, right? When we're given this new life, when we're given this new body, we are promised that it will never be stained by sin, that it will never have any type of illness to touch it. There, there will be no such thing as arthritis. There will be no pain. And these are the, this is the new body that will be given. Now Jesus also says this in John chapter 10, just a chapter before. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I think this one's pretty obvious how Jesus demonstrates this as he would stand on trial as an innocent man in the crowd would shout, crucify. That he would be tied to the post to be whipped. He would carry his own cross, the very thing that would kill him. And he would walk it around a mile down the road. And people would gather on the streets as he's walking through and they'd spit on him. They would slander his name. They would insult him, probably even throw some stones at him. They hung him on the cross one nail in each hand and one nail through both of his feet and they put a crown of thorns and pressed it down on his head until he bled just to mock him. 
Some scholars will even say that people would take handfuls of his beard and just rip it right out of his face. And he would struggle to breathe because every breath would take so much effort because of the position that he was in on the cross. And the only way for him to get a deep breath was to press down on the nails in his feet, to press down so that he could lift himself up to get a good inhale. But once he would let go, once he would fall back down, it would all exhale right out of his body again. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, when he received the drink, which I believe connects to the Garden of Gethsemane, when he asked for God, he says, if there's any way that I don't have to drink from this cup, let it be so, but I will drink from it. Well, then he receives the drink. And then Jesus says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, it is finished is also translated paid in full. The words for that is also paid in full. So not only is he laying down his life, he's paying our debt in full. But Jesus demonstrated that he is the good shepherd because he laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for the ones who would follow him so that they would be saved. John chapter 14, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, when Jesus raises from the grave, he demonstrates that he's the way to a new restored life with him. On three separate occasions, he told the disciples that he would die and rise from the grave three days later. And that's exactly what he did. So he is the way, but he's also the truth because he embodied the truth. He told the truth and he is the truth. And he's the life because he himself raised from the dead and is still alive today. Still alive today. Now, the last of the I am statements comes from John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, to get wine, you must first have grapes. To get grapes, you have to have branches. To have branches, you have to have the vine. And to have the vine, you have to have the water to supply the needs for the branches to bear the fruit to make the wine. Jesus is once again saying, I am the sustainer and provider of all things. He is the living water running through the vine and into the branches to give us life and to supply all of our needs. And without our life source, we will die. So Jesus being the vine gives us life so that we will never die because his supply of water will never run out. And I believe that Jesus demonstrated this with his very first miracle of turning water into wine. In John chapter 2, you find this story of they're at, the, they're at a wedding and they run out of wine, which in their time, in their culture was a big disgrace on the groom and his family to, to run out of wine. They ran out of wine. It was an emergency for them. And, and Jesus is asked if he would turn, if he would do something about it. And so Jesus comes and he turns the water into wine. Now in John chapter two, verse six, it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus tells the servants, fill them up with water. And then when they fill them up with water, they bring it back to Jesus. And then 
In verse nine, it says, they take it to the master of the banquet. When they take it to the master of the banquet, he says, usually we have the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine later because the choice wine tastes good, but then after everyone's a little drunk, then the, the, the cheaper wine just sustains. It just fulfills them. But he says, you have saved not the choice wine, the best wine for last. You see, these water jars that were used, if you remember, and just from me reading it, they're meant for ceremonial washing. So him as the living water, as the new wine, as the best wine, when he rose again, he washed away all of our sins and made all who follow him ceremonially clean before God. But in order to make wine, the grapes have to be crushed. So Jesus would humble himself and be crushed just like a grape. But when he rose again, he demonstrated that the crushing will always lead to the new wine. See, the cost was great, but the resurrection was all worth it just for you and me to be with him. To know him deeper and deeper still, to follow him wherever he leads you. But if you don't know who Jesus is, you'll miss out on what all of this really means. Let's just think about it for a second. Let's say that you were on death row. You committed some crime in your life. You found yourself at the wrong place at the wrong time and you committed a crime and you are worthy and the judge has said, you will be executed. You're gonna die. You're going on death row because of what you did. And do you know it? You rightfully deserve it. You might fight it, but you know that you did it. Now, if a random stranger walks up and says, no, 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 I'll take their place. I'll take your place. I'll, I'll die in place of you. Just let, let them live. And that stranger dies in your place. Would it mean something to you? Of course it would. Right, because you knew that you deserved death, but they, they came in and, and took the punishment for you. But I'm willing to bet that it would mean a whole lot more if it was your best friend. If it was your spouse, if it was your parents, maybe even your kids. Why would it mean so much more? Because you would feel the sting. You would know even more deeper and deeper still that you deserve that. But they loved you so much to take it away from you so that you could live. But that was you. You see, you sinned against the holy and righteous and just God of the universe. And you deserve death because that's the punishment for sin is death. That's the consequences of sin is death. And so when you sin against the, the God of the universe, you deserve death. But instead of just punishing you, God sent his son to save you, to pay the price, to set you free from the wages of sin and to bring you the resurrection and the abundant life. And even though you would deny him, even though you would sin against him, even though you would drive the nails deeper into his hands and feet, he still calls you friend. Because in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. 
if you do what I command. See, the moment that we celebrate on Easter is the greatest story of love ever told. And we are called to love just as he loved us, to lay down our life, not only for him, but for each other. We're called to take up our cross and to follow him daily, which means that we also have to die to ourselves, we have to die to our desires. We have to die to everything about ourselves so that Christ can resurrect us into a new life with him, the life that we are supposed to live, the purpose that we have in him. As I close this morning, I have one more thing to tell you about my Jesus. If Jesus was just a good teacher, if he was just a good Christian, if he was just a good preacher and a good man of God, his death would mean nothing. Because no one that I know of talks about how King David's death or Moses' death or Elijah's death or Peter's death or Paul's death really just changed their life. No one says, man, when Paul died, it really changed my life. No one says that, but they say that about Jesus. Because if Jesus was human, we wouldn't have Easter, because, but we know that he was so much more. In John chapter 8, Verse 58 says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered them, before Abraham was born, I am. You see, the I am statement meant something deeper to the Jewish people than it does to us. Because when Moses had the courage to ask God for his personal name, God replied in the book of Exodus, I am who I am which is believed to be translated as the personal name of God, which are the four consonants, Y-H-W-H, as we pronounce Yahweh. When Jesus was saying, I am, not only in this moment, but every single moment that he said the words, I am, he was using the same words. He was referencing this moment on the mountain and telling us, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the great I am. So throughout the book of John and throughout the other gospels, Jesus says, every time that he says, I am, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I'm gonna supply your needs like the bread. I'm gonna bring light to the darkness and the darkness is never gonna overcome it. I will open the door and I will open the gates of heaven and I will lay down my life like a good shepherd because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the resurrection, I am the life and I am the true vine. And he says, I am who I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. But I think it's so interesting that the very first miracle was turning water into wine and how it connects to the very last I am statement of Jesus. Because it's almost like Jesus was also saying in that moment, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the great I am. And Jesus is the great I am. He is God and he has risen and he is alive today and he's wanting a relationship with you. He's wanting to talk to you. He's wanting to get to know you. And he wants to know you deeper and deeper still. And he wants you to follow him, to take up your cross and follow him wherever he goes. So this front row, this step that we call the altar is waiting for you to respond. Now you don't have to come up here. I know like the seats are really comfy and everything and it's not comfy up here. But if you don't know Jesus, you just know a lot about him because you go to church. 
You know a lot about him because that was part of your family life, but you don't truly know him. I would encourage you to talk to God as we're singing this last song and say, God, I, I realize today that I really don't know you that well. I know a lot of facts about you. I know a lot of the stories about you, but I really don't know who you are. Then I would encourage you to talk to him and say, Lord, help me to know you better. Help me to follow you each and every day. Help me to die to myself daily so that you can raise me into a new life. The front row of the altar is waiting for you to respond. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, as you're moving through this place, I just pray that if there is anyone in here who knows a lot about you, knows a lot about your stories, knows a lot about what you've done, they know the Easter story, maybe even by heart, but they don't have a relationship with you. You are just like a stranger to them. I pray that you would press on their heart right now that there is so much more to you than just a stranger. That there is something so much greater about you. So Lord, I pray for those people on their behalf that they would come not just to know about you, but to know you deeper and deeper still. And Lord, as we sing this last song, may we give all of our praise, praising your name for you are the great I am. It's in Jesus' name we pray.